A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Rachel Cunliffe, Associate Political Editor at The New Statesman, and you're listening to The New Statesman podcast. Today, I'm joined by the journalist and author James Ball to discuss his new book, The Other Pandemic, and what it can tell us about what the hell is happening to US politics. James's new book is called The Other Pandemic, How QAnon Contaminated the World. So we were going to make this a timeless discussion about the rise of conspiracy theories and their impact on politics in general. But then, on Tuesday the 1st of August, this happened. Good evening. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. Yes, former U.S. President Donald Trump was indicted for the third time. This time, the charges are huge. Conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. So, James, how does all this relate to QAnon? QAnon was pretty intrinsically tied up to the whole January the 6th insurrection. A lot of its most visible figures were QAnon supporters or influencers. Perhaps the most famous photo from the whole thing is the QAnon shaman with his sort of face paint and his big hat. And so QAnon helped galvanise what became the January the 6th movement and helped to really push the more insane fringe versions of the idea that the election was stolen and Chia-led for his lawyers and all of these people. But then Trump's really embraced the movement much more afterwards. He's building up an alternate power base outside of democratic norms, and QAnon supporters are at the heart of that. And so it really does feel like the two stories are very intertwined. And I want to talk about how they're intertwined and how QAnon has grown into something global. But for listeners who don't actually know what it is or who think they might know what it is but aren't really sure where it came from, what is QAnon? It's an impossible question to answer because no one's in charge of it. It's essentially a shorthand for a bunch of conspiratorial beliefs. 
it started on a sort of obscure web board called 4chan in 2017 when an anonymous account posted that Donald Trump was arranging to have Hillary Clinton secretly arrested within the week. And, and this was this was obviously a joke, right? A very online joke for very online people who would have understood that it was a joke. Yeah, essentially, it was a habit on there to pretend to be in one of the security services and to tweet out clues and hints. And Q was really good at it. His posts were like really enigmatic and suggested, hey, ask a National Guardsman if they've been called up on Saturday. Look at their face. What does this mean? Why wasn't humour there? Why wasn't almost Socratic when it's questioned? And so it was really compelling. And essentially, some people seem to have forgotten they were playing and especially where it became dangerous was where, firstly, it combined with an idea that Hillary Clinton was running a sort of paedophile ring, possibly satanic, and it started going through YouTube influencers and Facebook accounts to people who weren't in on the joke and found it all very compelling and took it all very seriously. But then since then, especially after lockdown, the conspiracy keeps getting bigger. It pulls in lockdown and anti-vaccines and the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates. And so now it's essentially a nebulous mass of conspiracies that there's some kind of globalist elite or cabal plotting against the rest of us. Yeah, it's a meta-conspiracy theory or a sort of archetypal conspiracy theory that draws in lots of other conspiracy theories to it. Like At its heart, there's this idea that there's the shadowy cabal of global elites that include Hillary Clinton, Bill Gates, possibly the Queen, or she might just be a lizard, I'm not sure. Yeah, the Queen sometimes gets pulled yeah. in, understood she was part of it. Yeah. And then they're running a child sex trafficking ring, possibly cannibalistic, possibly child sexual abuse. It's really dark stuff. And then somehow this also simultaneously merged with the idea that Donald Trump won the 2020 election and that that election was stolen from him and that the deep state intervened in American democracy to stop him becoming president again because he was about to uncover this vast global conspiracy. That's the broad brush narrative, I guess, isn't it? Essentially that. They tried to tell themselves for a little while that Trump had faked losing so that he could lull them into a false sense of security. But then it seems to turn into the cabal sort of managed to pull one last trick, but Trump will be back. It should be said, this is a global conspiracy theory now. So the Donald Trump element is a much bigger aspect of it in America than it is for the rest of us. But they do all seem to go with it, even if they don't like Trump. And the reasoning you hear is, look, there's got to be a reason they hate him so much and fight him so much. That must mean he's on side. It's really interesting. I was on Talk TV just after the, the indictments came through and they were interviewing some Republican congressional candidate who was really leaning into the conspiracy elements of the indictments and how the Justice Department and the FBI, they need to go after Trump because it's a two-tier justice system and they want to distract you from what's going on with the global elites. Like he used all that terminology. So this is something that has very much migrated from a niche web forum onto Fox News, into US politics. You write in the book that it's got adherents in obviously the UK, Germany, Israel, which I thought was quite surprising as there's a clear anti-Semitic aspect to some of this. It's rooted in anti-Semitism and yet. And yet, but what you really talk about in the book is how the internet 
kind of created the conditions for what you call a digital virus like this to grow and mutate and spread and escape into mainstream society in the same way that a a virus could cause a global pandemic. I kind of want to ask, what is it about that analogy that you think is important and that we should be thinking more carefully about when we think about this conspiracy theory and how it's infected our politics? So I think we firstly have to look at the danger level of what's happened. And it is that a movement so fringe it started as a joke is now essentially one step from being the official sort of party political platform of the Republican Party of the biggest democracy in the world, the most significant, powerful democracy in the world. Um, So the danger level is very, very serious. It's not just the, quote, smaller risks of mass shooting or radicalization or that kind of thing. This could, at the worst case, topple a democracy. But the reason I go for the analogy I do is because I think we have a tendency to think of conspiracy theories as happening to other people or stupid people or credulous people, and they don't. The evidence, if anything, says that conspiracy theorists actually read a wider source of media than the average person. They're often, on average, more intelligent because they want to question things and question the world. They come from all political persuasions. Young men, women, older men and women can all go into it. You know, some groups are more susceptible. There are predictable factors like with COVID, but no one's immune. And it's not something that only happens to people who, you know, quote, deserve it. And another big theme of the book, and I guess of QAnon's evolution, is it might have started being about Trump, but a big part of it ended up being about COVID and lockdown and and anti-vaxxers. And I think there's an important UK politics angle here, which I hadn't realised. A lot of people will know that Piers Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn's brother, was a sort of anti-COVID, anti-vaxxer, that he got arrested for a demonstration in London during the lockdowns. We sort of know that part of it. That rally, that demonstration and and other ones that we had here in the UK that was ostensibly about let's not have lockdowns and let's not have vaccine mandates, that was related to QAnon, wasn't it? It was immensely related to QAnon. A few people will have gone being genuine lockdown sceptics, which is a perfectly acceptable political view. Whether you agree with it or not, it's within the bounds of politics. And then been really shocked to discover what got said from the stage there, which was full on, you know, often anti-Semitic, Q-adjacent conspiratorialism. And the thing is, they use these concerns that people might have where they feel they don't get listened to to sort of radicalise them. And Q, because unlike other sort of cults or conspiracies, it doesn't have one guru who says, yes, this is part of it or no, this isn't. It can change. It can be whatever it means to whoever is sort of listening to it. One of its mantras is to do your own research. So no one's going, here's what you're allowed to think. But people radicalize themselves in each other and end up pulled into it. And that's what makes it so dangerous. And it's why it's managed to adapt and find a version that works in so many different countries and societies. For people struggling to understand quite how all these very disparate beliefs and political views are meshed together, can you give some examples of current thinking or beliefs that people might have about things that aren't to do with Trump or Hillary Clinton or the election being stolen that have been absorbed into the narrative? QAnon people like the idea of following the white rabbit, probably because it was in the Matrix, but it started with Alice in Wonderland. And so I quite like the idea of go down one rabbit hole. And someone starts with a very legitimate, sensible position of how come this vaccine 
has come through so fast when everyone told us they needed 10 years, I don't want to be a test subject. And so you start searching, is the vaccine safe? And they find a YouTube video saying, here's why not to take the vaccine. And they start going, did you know that they haven't tested the vaccine against placebo since, say, 1960? which is true, you test them against other vaccines. And they search in those formats. They don't search for how did the vaccine get approved so fast, which would take you to something saying there are lots of factors, but every stage was gone through. But they end up searching, why are they trying to push this vaccine so quickly, which starts pushing them towards videos talking about depopulation or reducing fertility, and that those can still link to some sane-looking material. The Gates Foundation does do some work on helping reproductive health in lower-income countries. But the idea is that people have fewer children because fewer children die. It's not trying to depopulate. It's trying to sort of mean instead of having eight children in the hope that two or three survive, you have two or three that survive. But once you start getting to depopulate the world, you're very close to accepting that your government, your health advisors, the NHS, thousands of people are in on something that's acting massively against the public interest. You're down the rabbit hole. And each step felt reasonable. But once you're down there, once you think thousands of people will conspire to do something so evil, then why wouldn't they do something else as well? Why wouldn't they be secretly controlling the media or... Overturning an election. Overturning elections. Well, of course, you couldn't have elections if this these people are secretly running the world in this way. You'd have to rig them. And so once you go to the point where you believe that conspiracy exists for one thing, you need to believe it's doing the others as well. And so you suddenly go down what you thought was one rabbit hole and you find it's a whole warrant. After the break, we'll be discussing what all of this means for British politics and how we can go about trying to fix it. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A huge part of this is technology and the internet and how it works and how it works in ways that we didn't necessarily realize when we started using it and the sort of belated efforts to catch up. So this QAnon started off on this niche message board forum, 4chan, and then spun out when YouTube influencers realized that there was actual money in this, that if you make videos about a conspiracy theory, because it will shock people and scare people, they will watch it, you will get views, you can make money off that. It comes into Fox News. And the lack of regulation on other tech platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, not really knowing how to do that. You're quite critical, actually, of tech platform regulation or lack thereof. Like, we know that algorithms push you deeper and deeper into positions that you already have. Like, we've known that and accepted that for a number of years now. But 
aside from just the algorithms show you stuff that they think will keep you on the site for longer, what are some of the tech policy failings that you see that enabled this utterly mad fringe conspiracy theory to jump into the mainstream? I wish I could give you good, well-evidenced stuff as to what works or not. And I can't because funders and governments don't take this seriously enough to go, have we funded for putting up testing messages before content or not and published it in a proper journal? Have we funded exposing people to an idea before they see a video versus after? We don't research this. And yet it's a really major public health issue. But once you look at the actual tech companies, their problem is that they look to cover themselves first. And so that usually means acting as late as they possibly can because the political problems they get into are so partisan now. And the US Republican Party is so powerful and controls the Senate that if they try and take action once something's big, they know they'll get a terrible reaction. There's so much power behind conspiracy now. Well, yeah, they're it, in a tricky place. It's, it's still a majority of Republicans. They might not believe in QAnon itself, but a majority of Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen and that Donald Trump won. Yeah, and a majority of Republican representatives know that even if they won't embrace QAnon and they certainly won't believe it, they know that they need people who believe it to vote for them to keep their seats in the primary. And so they're willing to batter around big tech and to stop conservatives getting censored. And so they're in a, they've got themselves in a mess. The things they really need to look at are what are the incentives for content creators? And if they look early on at what's moving from 4chan onto Facebook or YouTube, they should be able to go, this trend is high risk. We're going to demonetize it for the first month or two. So if you're an influencer and you like it, you can still do your video on it. But there's not that sudden reason to go, this is where the cash is, I'll move to this. Because quite a lot of these people do it quite amorally. You can also go, this is high risk. I'll make it less prevalent in the algorithm. It'll still show up, but I won't, the second you watch one, give you 20 more of it. And so you turn from going, this is huge now and millions of people are there. Should we take it off the platform now they've all seen loads of it? To can we stop some of these before they start? That's an interesting question because one of the things you mentioned is that these big platforms, Twitter, Facebook, were so slow to remove Q content. In fact, they didn't start removing it until after the January 6th insurrection. By the time they did it, the people who believe it's all a big conspiracy theory and that the elites are in on it, they knew where they were going to move to next. They moved to Discord and Telegram, these sort of private encrypted messaging channels. And so they had warning, essentially, that this was going to happen. How do you prevent that from happening and try and keep public discourse safe without getting into questions of ah, it's censorship, it's free speech, it's Twitter and Facebook. It's not, it's not Twitter anymore. It's X, isn't it? It's X and Facebook. I think we can call it I Twitter. I think we can call it Twitter. <laughs> um, you know, telling you that this view is so dangerous to the global narrative, they don't want you to see it because nothing is going to tempt people to look at content more than being told this is what they don't want you to see, right? Both Twitter and Facebook should have done a lot of soul searching after January the 6th because they were left with the choice of either keep this stuff up and risk exposing millions and millions of more people to it and also being sued by victims, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or take it down and reduce the risk of new people finding it, but risking really radicalizing the people who were in it. And in the book, I interviewed the son of uh, a woman who was 
in that exact situation. She was following QAnon and into it, but it was like an hour a day on Twitter. And then once it got pulled from there, that convinced her there was truth to it or they would censor it. And so she started spending 11, 12 hours a day on Telegram and got really radicalized to the point that it's become her life. And she's still, I checked in with, with the interviewee, and she's still to this day a very radical follower of QAnon. And this is a sort of older woman in the UK. So what they have to do is make sure they're never facing that choice again. But that does mean that they have to be proactive and they do have to acknowledge, yes, these debates are very difficult. And yes, it's easy to say we shouldn't be making those decisions, but they put themselves in the position of it because they do have to be careful to protect free speech. You should be able to express vaccine hesitancy. You should be able to say that you oppose lockdown policies and so on. But there is a point where that crosses the line into invoking something dangerous. And they'd let things fester until they're so bad that they have to be deleted. And then they get surprised that everything goes really badly for them. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting distinction. There's a difference between saying, yes, you're free to have these views and to air these views, that's fine. And saying, we are going to set up our systems in such a way that enable you to monetize this, that incentivize you to spread this content because there's a literal financial incentive, there's an intention, attention incentive for you to spread this. The way the incentives have been set up is more important than the can you should you be allowed to say it or not, I guess. Yeah, Facebook and Google have done quite well at managing to sort of gloss over that not only were they allowing these views on their platform, they were paying people directly, often tens of thousands of dollars as they did so. And they were profiting themselves off all of that traffic. They sort of act like, oh no, this is a First Amendment type issue. What should we be stepping in on? It's like, no, you are creating the business model for these things. And for that, you do bear some responsibility. But also, there's an old economics sort of phrase of a big profit margin means that someone else is paying your costs. And Facebook has a huge profit margin. Google has a huge profit margin. And it's because they're under-moderating their networks. And they're not doing this kind of proactive work. And so they're inflicting these huge costs on society because they're being allowed to run their networks without the basic safety features. You could build a car much more cheaply and make a lot more profit on it if it didn't have to have all of the strict safety standards. We don't let them do that, so why are we letting Facebook and Google do it? It's funny you make the car analogy, because I interviewed Francis Hagen a few weeks ago, who is the Facebook whistleblower who exposed a lot of these practices, and she made that exact analogy, that we have safety standards for cars because we accept that if you don't, they can be very dangerous, and we need something similar for for social networks. And we also accept that you have restrictions to your freedom when in a car. You can walk on grass and on pavements. You cannot drive on them. If a road is closed or a light is red, you have to stop. And we don't see that as wrong. We understand that's how it works. Like the, in- the internet is the real world. It's not separate. What happens on the internet affects us here. And so we have to sort that. The internet is real life. That was literally my next question, which is that there are a lot of people who will say, yeah, this sounds utterly bizarre. Cannibalistic paedophile rings run from the basement of a pizza restaurant that doesn't even have a basement. That was one of the one of the early real life examples of it coming off the internet. This this has real world consequences. And it's not just say it's not just the January 6th insurrection. Obviously, that was a huge thing. But there have been killings, there have been near misses. There was the mass shooting here in the UK in Plymouth 
that was this key related. Like th- there are ways in which this becomes real life rather than the internet very quickly. Yeah. I mean, there is a good chance that the next president of the USA is playing to a base of Q supporters. I can't think of much more serious real world consequences than that. But the truckers protest in Canada had a significant QAnon element. The coup late last year from a few hundred people that was looking to overthrow the government of Germany and restore a Reich was QAnon related. There's been sort of violent attacks. And also with the vaccine issues, we don't know yet how many people will have died who might have lived had they had a vaccine. And so there's sort of very real and unpredictable consequences of all of this, especially because whether it's still called QAnon or not, this is going to keep happening. There are going to be these self-replicating, catchy ideas and conspiracies that spread globally. And so we've got to learn how to live with them. I feel quite anxious asking this, but has it infiltrated British politics? Are there any kind of examples you've seen of something that someone here has said and you've gone, I think I know where you've got that? I think there's the odd little bit. So Andrew Bridgen eventually got suspended from the Conservative Party for towing some of the stranger anti-vax lines. And I think in a sort of more insidious and subtle way, one of the ways the sort of QAnon idea infiltrates first US and then UK politics is through the whole groomer dialogue. Okay, groomer, you know, LGBT story hour type stuff with sort of the insinuation that drag queens or gay people are trying to recruit children or trans children. And some very senior government ministers, including Rishi, have been quite happy to jump on those. Now, I don't think they're overtly flirting with QAnon, but they're using tropes from it to do a very tacky, divisive and dangerous form of politics that I don't think is ideological from any of them. They're just showing in a Trump-like way. They're willing to tap into pretty much anything in a desperate hope to win an election. And that reflects really badly on them. It suggests that in substance, there's not much difference between Rishi and Donald Trump. That's terrifying. So thank you for that. I'm a right very shy. Just to go back to Trump and January the 6th, you've got a lot of people saying, obviously it was bad. Obviously it was really bad. But The systems worked. The insurrection failed. Biden did become president. Mike Pence didn't decertify the vote. The inauguration happened. Trump has now been indicted. The justice system is kicking into gear. Like, it's working. The scary virus from the internet didn't succeed in infecting politics in in such a way that, that Biden didn't become president and now there are consequences for it. Do you buy that? I think complacency is an incredibly dangerous drug. Maybe it's going to be fine. But Donald Trump recruited three members of the current US Supreme Court. His conviction will rely on a full jury of his peers voting guilty. So there only has to be one person who gets onto the jury who's secretly a Donald Trump for life fan to make sure he doesn't get convicted. If he's not convicted, that will be proof that this was a whole establishment witch hunt that was thwarted by his heroism. It could boost his popularity. Or think about the day of January the 6th itself. At one point, the mob was about 20 feet, 15 feet from a door into the Senate, which hadn't been evacuated yet. And a police officer led them the other way and the door got shut and they got evacuated. What would have happened if those two groups had made contact? What would have happened if Mike Pence had decided the other way? That is far closer than any of this is meant to come. And 
to sort of go, we got that close. It just about failed. We don't need to worry about it. I think would be a very silly move indeed. Okay. So what do we do? The problem is it, it is the classic. I wouldn't start from here because, you know, the world's most powerful democracy is going to be able to do nothing about this because it's a huge faction of one of their two parties. And so you need the EU to really force big tech to up its its sort of defences on this because they're the world's biggest and most valuable market. And so they can't say no to the EU and the US won't be able to scare them enough to stop them because they're too divided. So we need the EU to actually take up a leadership role to defend free expression, the free internet, free society. And instead of just playing their usual let's be mean to big tech, and just pass some stuff to give them some fines. They have to actually do it. But we do as governments need to start looking at what works tackling this and what doesn't, and how can we find out? Now, the Industrial Revolution, everyone moved to cities, and then they were really polluted, and people were getting cholera, and infectious disease was a much bigger problem, and it was miserable. And we invented public health and a lot of modern healthcare to counter that. We've got a new revolution, and... I'll be honest, I don't think his problems are quite as bad as the last one, but they're the ones we're living through and they're pretty serious. And we're currently not really trying to do anything about it. And we need that field of digital public health to be born. We need to do uh, John Snow, where he discovered that cholera spread through the water and he could fix it by not having it. We need the money and the inspiration and the talent going into working out how we make the online public space healthy and nice to live in. Yeah, there are some interesting analogies there with public health about mapping how things like this spread and what makes someone susceptible to it and whether inoculation can help. I've, I've spoken to a number of digital tech experts on misinformation who say that one of the things you can do is you expose people to the ideas before they encounter them from the conspiracy theorists. Yeah, that, that, work, that works, we think, a lot better. But also, you should take the idea seriously. It shouldn't be, here's why this stupid idea isn't true. It's, hey, people say this vaccine skipped all the steps, did it? Yeah. And then you walk people up the route to say, no, it didn't. But you take the concern seriously at the top in a way that fact checks don't. You know, you go on the journey with the person, you phrase it with the question, because then when someone encounters the idea elsewhere, they go, oh, no, that's not true. But you do have to try and frame them in ways so people will read them and make them compelling. How confident, optimistic, reassured are you that that's something that can be done or will be taken seriously? Cautiously, maybe even guardedly optimistic. I think you have to have hope. If you cover something like this and go, and there's nothing we can do, you just really depress yourself as well as everyone else. I'd like to think I wouldn't have written it if I didn't think there's still time to improve it and there's still lots we could do. So I worry about all of it. But I don't look at it and go, there is no way to fix this. I just look at it and go, it gets harder for each time we delay taking it as seriously as it needs to be taken. Thank you so much for taking the time to to chat and to outline all of that. I should say this is the fifth or sixth time we've attempted to have this conversation and record it. So you could say that there's some shadowy deep state conspiracy that is trying to prevent you from getting the word of all of this out and promoting your book on the New Statesman podcast. But they have not I, seen I have it. to say that- this is the one conspiracy I now believe that to call this recording cursed is a vast understatement. It's doomed. It was doomed, but we got there in the end. It's a really fascinating book. And thank you for sharing your thoughts on it and for basically terrifying me and I think quite a few of our listeners.
<laughs> Thank you for letting me do so. Thanks so much for listening. James's book, The Other Pandemic, is available in shops and online now. We also have a brilliant article on the New Statesman website exploring the confusion and consequences of Donald Trump on trial, written by David Bromwich. The link to that is in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my guest, James Ball. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Chris Stone. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.